The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is a very interesting contributor to the village of University Hills, which is the large faculty staff residential area of UCI. From his actions, this gentleman believes in making a difference where he lives. He's been described to me as a big fan of bikes, sharpening knives, internet privacy, and civil discussion on list serves. We will definitely have to hear more about those. A big hearty welcome to Renaissance man, Harry Mangalum. Welcome, sir. How are you today? Oh, today I'm just fine. A little bit the the slight global depression of COVID, but other than that, just fine. Good. I know what you're talking about. Well, it's great to have you. Why don't we just start from the start? Where'd you grow up and what'd you like to do when you were a kid? So uh, my background is a little odd and itinerant. Uh, I was born in West Pakistan, where my parents were teaching. And uh, so they actually met in Cornell, where my father was taking biochemistry and my mother was taking some kind of social studies course. They got married. They moved to Lahore in West Pakistan. I came along and then my sister did. And then they moved back to the States. My father was actually ejected from his teaching position because he wanted to include Muslim students in the, in the curriculum and the, uh, the Christian college that he was teaching at didn't like that. So he was a little bit of a leader in that sense. How long did you live in West Pakistan? Just about two years. Okay, so do you really actually remember much or? Uh, Nothing at all. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so then did you move back to Cornell or where did you move back to? No, then we uh, hopscotched around the United States for a little while. We went back to New York briefly. Then uh, my father got a job at University of Kentucky. Then after that, uh, he got a job at University of Guelph in Ontario and then at Dalhousie in Nova Scotia. And that was when my mother finally put her foot down and said, you can move wherever you want, but we're staying here. <laughs> and so after that, then I went to UBC in British Columbia, where I got a bachelor's and a master's in comparative physiology, then went down to UCSD for my PhD in molecular biology, and then across the street to the Salk Institute for some fly genetics, and then followed my wife up to UCI, where we were only supposed to stay for five years. But it has turned out to be slightly longer than that. I think this is 25th or 26th year at UCI. So what year did you guys actually come to UCI? We came in 93. And actually, we got our escrow papers in University Hills the day before the uh, Laguna fires almost burned us out. 
Oh, wow. So, so that was exciting. Did University Hills have to evacuate during those fires? Yeah. Yeah. So we moved in and then basically the day after, a few days after we moved in, we had to evacuate. Luckily, we still had the lease on that apartment that was further down the hill. We stayed there with our next door neighbors, which is how we met them. And then we traveled back through a cloud of ash to our house uh, and found that it was still standing. And so we've lived in the same house since then. So now that you came to UCI, I understand, did you get into computers at that point? No. So I was doing a bunch of biology and molecular biology work until I got to UCSD. And then through a happy coincidence, my advisor got a Howard Hughes grant. And in those days, the Howard Hughes organization was under extreme pressure from the IRS to get rid of lots and lots of money really, really fast. So we were actually encouraged to buy as many things as we wanted and buy you know, whatever we wanted which was really nice. So we ordered computers for everyone and I got a computer and I started messing around with computers. What year is that? It's about 1986 or so. A little bit before that, maybe 1985, I think. So really back in the days when a lot of things crashed a lot of times. Yes, those were the days of DOS and Windows and uh, the very earliest Macs. And the, the, the computers we got happened to be Windows PCs because... Howard Hughes didn't like Macintoshes, but that's how I sort of got my start on programming on the Windows platform. When I was doing my master's in BC, my advisor, one day he pushed in this huge uh, sort of refrigerator sized chunk of equipment called uh, Mink 11, which is the, one of the first lab computers. And he basically told me, get it going. And so luckily or unluckily, a piece of critical equipment broke at that point and waiting for it to get repaired, I then converted it over to try and get this very odd chunk of machinery going. And I hooked it up to a, an HPLC, high pressure liquid chromatography machine to do peak detection and peak integration, and then used it to drive a bunch of uh, experiments and record a bunch of stuff direct to digital. And so that's how I did my DHD once that piece of equipment was, was fixed. Wow. So that's where I started my interest in programming. And then when I got to UCSD and I got these computers from uh, the Hughes Foundation, I was able to, I mean, they're much more powerful computers, much more memory, much more disk, and I was able to start programming on them. Unfortunately, programming on DOS and Windows, if you make a wrong command, it basically crashes the computer system. So it wasn't really until I got to the Salk Institute and they had a biocomputing department, oddly enough. And so that was sort of the transition point. My postdoc was going very slowly and I was starting to hang out for longer and longer periods in the biocomputing division to sort of try and do some analysis and got into programming there where I was able to program using a Silicon Graphics workstation running a variant of Unix. And what the nice thing about Unix is that they, it's, a, it's protected memory. They don't crash if you write a line of data into the wrong place in memory. So that's when I really got started on computer programming and then uh, actually switched over to the biocomputing department and was faced with the task of learning how all the equipment worked. And in those days, the equipment was basically this huge wall of orange binders and you had to read through the whole thing to sort of figure out what did what. And Mm -hmm. at that point, I figured that it would probably be easier if I could just um, uh, use the internet and a bunch of listservs on the internet to uh, integrate and then um, create a searchable database for the information I was using. And that's when sort of my interest in the internet and and databases started as well. 
And so I did that originally for the VAC system that we were using. That was a whole digital um, uh, system. And then that switched to the Silicon Graphics workstation. It was about that time that Linux started to be developed. And so I started databasing all the Linux listservs into a, an online database. And that was sort of my start with Linux, which has sort of continued to this day. Can you explain for the listeners out there who don't understand list serve you i i hear that a lot at uci but when i'm not around uci i don't hear that can you tell us what it is yeah uh listserv is um i guess the more uh modern equivalent is something like google groups or a discussion group it's basically a, a common meeting place where lots of people can email in their comments and it, it's uh it's hosted there often it's database and, and a lot of times it's searchable the one that we're using in University Hills is a very, very old one called Mailman, and it's not searchable, but we're starting to transition a lot of the discussions to Google Groups, which just has better search capabilities. Are you familiar with Nextdoor? Is it? Yeah, so Nextdoor is, yeah, Nextdoor is sort of the commercialized version of the, of the kind of thing we're doing. And in fact, Nextdoor is basically taking all the technology that was open source and monetizing it, as well as all personal comments for, for and then shipping you uh, advertisements based on your discussion threads and the content. So it's very much like Nextdoor. So are you the one that runs the listserv for University Hills? I, along with uh, Nina McDonald, actually Nina McDonald, working on it before I was here. And together we basically do, you know, a minimal amount of work on the listserv, basically answering questions and helping people get connected or disconnected as the case may be. It doesn't require a whole lot of oversight. There have been very few cases where we had to intercede and tell people to be quiet and things like that. But it's a academic group, so there are lots and lots of different opinions. Many of those people are highly opinionated, uh, but it, in general, it's been fairly well self-regulated. Mm -hmm. Wow. Does it just continually expand just based on people coming and going and staying yeah. Yeah, so it, it expands sort of infinitely. I mean, I think there are now about a thousand households that are subscribed to it in one form or another. Sometimes both people, both uh, partners will subscribe to it. Quite often, though, it's only the non-UCI-affiliated person that subscribes because the UCI-affiliated person is generally too busy to uh, subscribe and interact with the community. So in that sense, it's a, a partners of mm. UCI faculty listserv. So did you work... At UCI when, you know, early on? Because you no longer are working for UCI. Is, is that true? Right. I'm retired from UCI right now and, and will never work for UCI again. But originally when I first moved here, I worked for UCI for a little while. And then I went to work for a uh, nonprofit called National Center for Genome Resources in New Mexico and was working remotely from them. I'd, I'd go back and I'd visit them for about once a month. Mm -hmm. But most of the time I worked out of my house, which was good because we had small kids at that point. So that was, you know, that was really, really convenient. And then I went to work for a, uh, a for-profit. It was a spin-out of a company called Insight Pharmaceuticals. This was about the time that the, the bioinformatics boom or, um, or bubble, as the case may be, was growing in Silicon Valley. And so basically, if you had anything to do with DNA or databases, the companies were just insanely overvalued. And I came in just about at the peak of that bubble and was, was with the company when it exploded, <laughs> and then went back to work for myself. After that, I worked 
as a sort of a government contractor with one of the people who was working at National Center for Genome Resources. She got a job with one of the, the government agencies doing some bioinformatics work, and I helped her. And then after that, I went back to work for UCI, initially as a subcontractor on a grant that one of my neighbors had gotten. Um, that neighbor, Charlie Zender, is an atmospheric physicist. And he wrote a uh, this utility called NCO, or NetCDF Operators, which processes vast amounts of information from satellite data. And so I helped him look at that and optimize it slightly, although he did overwhelmingly the uh, most of that work. But I helped him do some of the quantification of how that program operated, helped him debug a little bit. And then after that contract ended, OIT, which is the main sort of computer agency at UCI, picked me up and invited me to um, apply for this research computing job that came open. And I stayed there from that point until when I retired a year ago. Essentially, that allowed me to figure out how computer clusters work. So compute clusters are basically just individual PCs that are linked together by some kind of networking. They run some kind of scheduler, which allows jobs that are specified in a script to go on these computers. And they overwhelmed the proprietary supercomputer industry because they were just so much cheaper. Basically, you use commodity hardware to build gigantic supercomputers. And this is, by and large, how all supercomputers are built now. And all those supercomputers, again, use Linux. They used to run proprietary operating systems like Cray did and or variants of, of Unix like uh, BSD or SunOS. But now, basically, I think in the top 500, uh, all five top 100 um, uh, supercomputers now run Linux, as did ours. And so it was really useful. Soon after I got there, a, a local company called Broadcom donated several semi-trailers of old equipment to UCI. And out of those, that sort of junk, I and another guy built actually uh, initially competing clusters, and, and then eventually they were merged into one cluster, which is very similar to the one that UCI is running now. So I had no background in, in computers, no formal background in computers. In fact, the only formal computer class I took as an undergrad was in computer graphics. And because I didn't have nearly the math, I, I failed the course. <laughs> so uh, not a very uh, good introduction to the computing field, but it was, it, was really, it was really, really interesting. And eventually I met enough people who were good enough to sort of lead me through all the, the hard bits and got me programming and got me into the, the whole computer field. Interesting. Excuse me just for a moment, Harry. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is a man of many hats from University Hills, PhD, Harry Mangalam. And we're just talking about how he came to UCI and, and what he's been involved with in the past and uh, working our way up to what he's working on now. So you retired about a year ago, Harry. How's retirement? Well, it's not what I was planning to do. Initially, I retired and was planning to build a house in Nova Scotia with a large workshop. Currently, our garage is, a, is my workshop that I, sh I used to share with my wife, but then um, she really didn't have enough time for her uh, garage-sized hobby. And now her, her hobbies there are mostly theoretical. Um, mm -hmm. So I get the, basically the whole garage, but turned out to be a little bit too small. So we're, we were planning a, a very large workshop in, and a much smaller house in Nova Scotia. And up until, I guess, February, I was still planning on going out for the summer and helping build that house. Let me just share with my listeners that in case you don't know, Nova Scotia 
looks like an island. It's connected to the mainland, but it looks like an island. It's, it's just off the east coast of Canada and also in the state of Maine. In fact, Halifax is one of the major cities in Nova Scotia, which is where the Titanic survivors uh, landed after the, that whole accident. So whereabouts on the island are you looking to build? We're down near a town called Bridgewater, which is about 60 miles south of, of Halifax. And oh, okay. it's on the very end, about an eight-mile-long inlet. And then our property is about eight miles inland from that. So we're about 16 miles inland from the coast on a, a widened chunk of the Lahave River called uh, Wenzel Lake. We chose that somewhat explicitly. We didn't want to be right on the coast because of all the hurricane uh, activity that Nova Scotia uh, gets a few, a few times a year. And it is about, it's also 100 feet off the lake. So, uh, you know, if the lake floods, we're not going to be inundated by that. Mm. The, the, and it, like I said, the house is, uh, is actually smaller than the workshop. And, the, and my wife is seriously thinking of the, her part of the workshop now. So she has claimed uh, her chunk of the workshop, which is now walled off. And, and she claims to be lockable from, from my part of the workshop. <laughs> so you're talking about the workshops in Nova Scotia, in that yeah. the garage there. Gotcha. So are you guys going to be moving there when the pandemic stops? No, I'll be going there for very large chunks of time. My wife is going to be here for another four or five years doing various things. She's a cancer researcher. She's the associate director of the cancer center here. Uh, she just gave up her directorship for the Cancer Research Institute. She works on colon cancer at a molecular uh, level. Uh, she's not a clinician, but she's a, a basic scientist. And she's still very much involved in the in basic research. And she just got a, a, a I guess, two year, one or two years ago, they got a large grant with uh, a two other people here to, um, which is a five-year grant. And so it still has, I think, another three, three or four years to run. So she's going to be here for that duration. So, wow, that'll be a big change when you guys finally do move there. What is it about Nova Scotia that you love? Well, the rest of my family is up there. My sister and my mother and uh, her husband. And um, while her kids, like mine, have sort of diffused away, hopefully some of them will maybe even come back to Nova Scotia and live there, we're hoping. But the thing I like about Nova Scotia, it's, it's relatively small. So the degrees of freedom, like this Kevin Bacon number, is is very, very low. Like if you know somebody and you meet somebody, chances are you either know them already or you know somebody that they know. That, I mean, it has ups, upsides and downsides, but the upsides is that, you know, I think because it's such a small place and because everybody depends on each other for much more, people tend to be kinder to each other there. I mean, there are, there are nasty and bad people everywhere, but the number of bad people I've met in Nova Scotia, I can probably count on one hand. And that's having grown up there as well. So um, I, I like, uh, and especially in the place that we're, we're building our house, I very much like our neighbors. One of the people down the road, he runs sort of a Buddhist conference center called Windhorse. And as part of that concern, they had a wood shop. And for the longest time, I would go down there and use their wood shop. And then things sort of wound up working closer and closer to him. And eventually we were thinking about that I would actually buy the wood shop and uh, help run it. But for various reasons, that never panned out. But we're still very friendly. And I'm hoping to, to go down there and help him out as I can. Uh, other neighbors up and down the place are just charming, beautiful people. One of the neighbors just built a house down closer to the lake than our house will be. And he's very much into forests and trees and reforestation. One of his favorite activities is 
is roaming the woods and, and, you know, snuffling and digging around, uh, picking mushrooms um, and uh, bird watching and things like that. And another one just a little bit further down the road is a, um, he's, he, his interest in machinery and, and, uh, and workshops and his expertise is just astonishing. Anything that I bring up, he's already been there, done that, and uh, moved on to the next thing. So he's a great uh, resource as well. He, he runs a, in fact, the reason that he moved in, he ran around Nova Scotia with a radio wave spectrum analyzer. And the area that we're in is apparently one of the um, quietest for radio interference in Nova Scotia. And since he runs an enormous ham radio uh, system, actually four or five of them, uh, that's one of the reasons to settle down there. So he is, uh, he's quite the, the, the polymath. Mm. So um, I, like the, the, I like the weather. So instead of, uh, <laughs> I mean, you choose your poisons, but uh, in California now it seems to be, uh, we're heading towards sort of an extinction event in terms of fire, fires, uh, fire season and other climate change uh, events. Uh, waiting for the big one, we we're running out of water. We're running out of space. Uh, the political system down here seems to be moving closer and closer to catastrophe. And while certainly the government in Canada and Nova Scotia is, is, is not perfect, um, it seems to be a lot more amenable to uh, or closer to democracy or actual, democ actual working democracy than in the States. And smaller, the, the climate is certainly uh, more amenable. It has fresh water in abundance. It's on the ocean, so it's moderate uh, in temperature for most of the year. I have some friends that do uh, sailing, and, I, and that's, so that's that's the best way to go sailing: is have a friend who has a boat. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so we're, we're um, when I up there, I, we go sailing a fair amount. And in fact, the neighbor down the road has a has a little sailboat for the for the lake, which, um, which we go out on every once in a while. So, and, and in fact, the, the river itself has a lot of, uh, it's an elongation of the uh, Lahave River. And Lahave used to be the second best salmon uh, river in Nova Scotia. And now with climate change and some contamination of uh, invasive species, there's almost no salmon run at all. But there's always hoping that it, we might be able to revert it back to an actual uh, salmon river. Mm. And in fact, it's a beautiful lake to canoe on and kayak on. One of my projects here that I was working on, you mentioned that I'm interested in bikes. So I sort of combined my, my, li my liking of canoeing and, and biking with a pedal-powered canoe that I built down here. So I, somebody gave me an old fiberglass canoe, and I, I was able to install and build a, uh, a pedal system for it, So, which was just, just sort of, it was revelatory in that how efficient pedaling is versus paddling. So with a single person pedaling this thing and two additional adult passengers, you can basically push this thing. And the canoe was not very uh, hydrodynamic. Out on Back Bay, we can go as fast as an ocean kayak, one of these very long, you know, extremely optimized uh, hydrodynamic with a single adult in it. That's really interesting. I, I've done a fair amount of kayaking. and I've never thought about a pedal mobile kayak. There are a couple different designs out there. Hobie sells one which sort of uses seal, um, penguin flippers or seal flippers to flap underneath the kayak. And that's very good, except it's very difficult to do something like a reverse thing. And especially in Nova Scotia, and especially in the lake that we're on, it's quite shallow. There's lots of rocks. There's lots of logs protruding. If you hit one of those things with one of these flippers, you're, you're quite likely to damage it. Right. And so that's why I was thinking about an internal sort of a jet pump or a jet boat, but still pedal powered kayak so it can go over very shallow waters and, and still uh, use the efficiency of pedaling. 
Please excuse me again, Harry, so I can inform my listeners. If you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is retired OIT computer researcher, Harry Magnolum, who spends much of his time now helping University Hills neighbors with bike tune-ups, household knife sharpening, list serve, and resolve issues. Now back to the interview. So I understand that you are quite helpful with bikes in University Hills. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I've always liked biking and bike touring, bike commuting. Obviously, if you live in University Hills, you're only about a mile away from the university. And so I bike commuted my entire career here. And especially once I retired, I decided that since I had a little bit more spare time and since I'm trying to convince more people to use biking for short distances as opposed to cars. I offered uh, to the community, you know, if you have a biking problem, I'll fix it for free. And all I ask is that you pay it forward to a, to a local charity, uh, what you think it's worth to me. So it's sort of basically a pay it forward kind of system. And especially now with COVID, more and more people taking up biking, I'm repairing, you know, one or two bicycles a day for people in the neighborhood, you know, fixing things up. And especially, especially for kids, especially in a COVID thing, you don't want them jammed in a bus. So more and more people want their kids to bike to school if they are, in fact, going in class uh, schools, but they don't want them jammed in buses. And so a bike allows them to uh, be separate and outside and transport themselves to the schools. And so it's especially important for kids to at least be able to stop when they're biking to school. And so many of the kids' bikes that you find either secondhand or even new have very poor brakes. And so whenever school starts or whenever there's a vacation or something like that, I put out another notice on the list to bring your kids' bikes to me to make sure that they're safe before they, they, you put them out on the road. Super. And what about the knife sharpening? Is it just a side hobby also? Yeah, it's very much a side hobby. I mean, I do a lot of woodworking and metalworking. So I've over the years, I've built up a fair amount of sharpening detritus. And so I have wheels and strops and, and various grindstones and, and whetstones and oil stones and diamond stones and things like that. And I've made my own sharpening widgets and stuff like that. It was originally sort of a Thanksgiving time offer for the University Hills. So just before American Thanksgiving, I'd put out a notice saying, bring me your knives. Mm-hmm. And now it's sort of decayed or expanded, whichever you <laughs> like, to be sort of a year-round thing. If your knives are dull, you bring them to me, I sharpen them for free or quote-unquote free, and then in return, you're somewhat expected, you're encouraged to uh, make a donation to a local charity. And overwhelmingly, I think most people do that. In the cases where people have actually shown me what they've donated, the people that have donated overwhelmingly donate more than it would cost them to, to have their knives sharpened at a commercial operation. Excellent. And you talked about wood and metal working. Is that artistic or what kind um, of stuff do you do? I've always enjoyed woodworking. So this is one of the things that I um, view with some sadness is that wood shop and sort of industrial arts has sort of disappeared out of uh, high schools because of insurance and also costs. But when I was in junior high, I had a shop teacher, Mr. Slack, who was just fantastic and who introduced me into woodworking. And I was so enthusiastic. We had a small room off the basement that my parents allowed me to uh, to sort of inhabit and fill up with sawdust and uh, actually uh, encouraged me to the extent that they bought me some woodworking equipment. And <laughs> one of which was a jointer on which I immediately uh, shaved off the end of my little finger uh, in learning how to use it. 
but that did not dissuade me. And so I, I've continued my, my interest in woodworking. And when I was a, a graduate student in postdoc, I didn't have enough time to do, you know, large projects. So I started doing small pieces that can be finished off in fairly small amounts of time, small amounts of equipment. And that for some reason led me to do wooden spoons. And so I've continued making these wooden spoons. Well, most of them are, are useful, but uh, some of them are sort of decorative or art pieces only because they're so fragile. But uh, I've continued doing that. And then every fall we have a, uh, a craft show in University Hills and I, uh, I put my wares out and uh, basically it's a self-funding hobby. I, it, it, they don't make enough money to, to, to live on certainly, but it, it's certainly fun to work on. And uh, then on top of that, I also do uh, small uh, furniture projects and carpentry, house renovations and things like that. If I don't do something with my hands at least once a day, uh, you know, in terms of fixing something or taking something apart or doing something with my hands, I feel excessively nervous. So it's sort of a, it's both a, a hobby as well as a, uh, a drug. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Well, Harry, you guys have been around UCI for quite a while. Do you have any memories from the early days that particularly stick out? Did the school explode in building after you got here, or was it already well on its way? Uh, a lot of the uh, building sort of did explode after we got here. Um, I mean, it, it, not like UCSD, which is just undergone sort of, uh, well, explosive is, is an understatement. Uh, UCSD, I can no longer even find the building that I did my graduate's uh, work in. It's, it, the place has expanded so much, and I think a large part of that is the Qualcomm connection and, and uh, the sort of biotech and tech uh, area funding increased uh, building and research at UCSD. Well, UCSD has actually expanded more than UCI. Oh, yeah. I mean, part of it's because of this sort of saltatory experience that I have with, with UCSD. I mean, we, we have friends down there, but we go down there once every few months. But even in during those few months, go, walking around the campus, it's astonishing. I, I would say easily, it looks like three to five times the kind of growth that's happening at UCI. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. It, it's just, it's mind boggling how much, how much they're growing, how many buildings are going in. And even my friend who's, who's a prof in the electrical uh, engineering place there, I mean, he gets lost walking around UCSD with the, the new buildings growing up. It's like every time you go down there, there are four or five new buildings uh, growing up or, and, and, or even new campuses. I mean, there, there's uh, on the uh, east side of the uh, freeway, there, there are entire campuses that have grown up in terms of uh, medical school and uh, uh, medical systems. Uh, it's just, it's quite astonishing. Interesting. How about in terms of people that you've met over the years? Is there any one or two in, in particular visiting professors or, or people who are here that you're just like still in awe and you've been able to interact with them? Um, I mean, it's a, it's a university, so universities tend to attract very, very bright people. And some of those very, very bright people, uh, or most of those very, very bright people, have enormous amounts of energy. So some of the people that I've met are just are astonishing in terms of the amount, in terms of, not only in terms of their professional work, but in terms of their outreach, in terms of their dedication to their uh, both their research and, and uh, other things. I mean, well, I mean, obviously my, my wife is one of those people. She's a cancer researcher. She she's, has all this uh, other requirements for her time in terms of the cancer center, her research, the uh, well, two, two 
two institutions, the uh, Cancer Research Institute and the Cancer Center itself, as well as her research, overseeing graduate students on various committees, uh, reviewing manuscripts. And th this is sort of the same, this is the same thing for almost all basic researchers. They're just tremendously overscheduled. One of the people that uh, is a recent member, uh, a recent person that came in is uh, this guy, Daniel Whiteson, who's in the physics department. So not only is he a, a world-class researcher in particle physics, but he's also taken the time with a, a friend of his, Jorge uh, Cham, I think, to uh, first do a, a cartoon about how they found the Higgs boson. And then they later turned that into a, uh, an animated series. And then they started a podcast about it. Uh, Daniel and Jorge explain the universe. And now it's turned into a PBS series, Emily Wonders Why. I may have the name wrong. Doing all this on top of maintaining a research program. And the other you know, bizarre thing is that his wife is a world-renowned microbiome researcher. So two extremely dedicated, extremely well-regarded researchers married to each other and raising two kids. You know, that's just, that's mind-boggling. Yes. Did you ever have the opportunity to meet Sherry Rowland? I never met him. My next door neighbor, Charlie Zender, is in, still in ESS. Through him and when I was working with him on his uh, NCO project, I met a number of people in, the, in uh, physics and, and uh, in earth sciences. And yeah, they, they just do amazing work. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like with your uh, involvement with computers and listservs, et cetera, when Facebook first came out, did you see what they were doing? And what was your sense of it initially? Or did you have a sense of it? Facebook, no. I mean, I, uh, for whatever reason, when Facebook came out, I, I, I've never been a Facebook member. I've, mm. uh, I just, just didn't <laughs> like the, I, there were so many things that were sort of either vaguely or very sort of repulsive about it that I just never, I just did not like that particular um, aspect of it. One of the things that I was early interested in at an early stage was the collection and indexing of information. So I mentioned this thing about how to learn about a, a complex system by indexing all the listservs that were related to it. So I was much more interested in Google's approach. So initially there were a bunch of smaller projects. AltaVista was one of them. It was started off and then Google came along and basically swallowed the universe. And so the ability to index lots and lots of information is, is enormously powerful. That's the thing that really uh, appealed to me. And in fact, that has eaten the universe now. Google is, is the largest uh, source of information in the, in the world now. Also, uh, Wikipedia, I'm a, a big advocate and supporter of Wikipedia because it really does do at least somewhat reviewed articles about everything under the sun. And, and diving into Wikipedia, I still spend hours, you know, going through Wikipedia to learn about new topics or find out more about other topics. It's just a, an amazing, amazing place. So I guess the difference is both Google and Wikipedia allow you to swim in a sea of reasonably good information, whereas Facebook seems to me to be swimming in a sea of disinformation. <laughs> uh, obviously, there are exceptions to, to both those uh, points of view, but in general, that's my take on it. In both cases, the scale of the, the operations is just is astonishing to me. As, as somebody who has dealt with large assemblages of, of computers and networks and storage devices and how to move information back and forth and how to back up systems and how to recover from disasters and things like that, just the scale of Google and Amazon and Facebook and, and Apple, just the scale just 
boggles my mind. Also, the security precautions that have to be taken prevent massive failures. That, that, that's another thing that, that just is very, very impressive. Even with many, many of the failures that you see, the failures that you don't see are, are astonishing to me. When you say failures that you don't see... So the, like, the fact that, that these operations are not falling over every single day is, is, is really quite, quite amazing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the uh, things that I read about that was really both funny and quite serious was that Netflix, for example, the streaming service, is a mostly cloud-based service. And initially, when they went into the cloud, they developed a series of programs called Chaos Monkeys. And these programs would just run around and randomly break things. They would randomly interrupt things or bring down services so that they could make sure that their entire operations would fail over smoothly and continually, or they would continue to operate. Mm-hmm. And now they've increased that. And I, I would imagine that most large systems have similar systems in place where they basically they test their systems by, having, by forcing their systems to undergo random failures. Backup systems are in place. I mean, so I, I know certain that UCI does not have these systems in place, but they could learn a lot by trying to emulate those things. Actually, a story from the early days of the internet and and my days at UCI. So when I first got here, I thought that it would be useful for UCI researchers to be able to peruse and order from a catalog called VWR. And this was a scientific catalog that comes in these gigantic, like, like thousand or 2000 page catalogs. And, and so I, I, in, in pursuing this, I phoned up VWR and I, I tried to get them to cooperate in a, um, in a system where we would be able to digitize and then make available all their information on the internet so that they would, you know, people could order over the internet. And it seems like a no-brainer today, but the, the, the feedback that I got from them was, were a couple of threatening letters from their lawyers saying, if you try and do anything like this, we would be on top of you and we would sue you out of existence. Because they thought that this approach would reveal their IP, their intellectual property, rather than opening up markets to a much larger, uh, much larger and in fact, that was sort of the response early in the internet days is that it, the internet was sort of thought of as a very unruly, ungovernable mass of hackers. And, and to an extent, it still is, but people have found out that in fact, it's a very useful uh, invention. Did you ever have the opportunity to meet Vincer? I've met him a couple times. Can you uh, describe to the listeners who he is? Oh, Vincer is one of the fathers of the internet. And so I think currently... He works for Google. He's a sort of a, um, a vice president. Um, of an evangelist of yeah. internet things. He is one of the people that was instrumental in getting a number of disparate uh, academic institutions to band together to form the uh, what originally passed as the internet. So he and the inventor of Ethernet, names is for forgetting, but the, the people who originally designed large intranets, so things for an institution, got together and formed intranets, so allow these separated networks to actually work together. Bob Metcalf, uh, that's who it was, who developed Ethernet, which was one of the enabling technologies that allowed the internet to take place. So being hunkered down with COVID, any plans or are you just trying to stay safe and get through it? Well, it hasn't affected me nearly as much as other people. I mean, I'm happy working in my garage, fixing bikes, doing stuff, hurting my hands in various operations. So I'm pretty self-contained. The only thing that it really stopped me from doing is, is again, going to Nova Scotia and building this house. 
but in, even in towards that, the delay in building the house, you know, once you start thinking about various things, you realize things that you'd forgotten, you rethink things, you do a little bit more research, a little bit of delay is not a bad thing at all uh, when it comes to doing the largest building a house. So it hasn't been too bad on me. I mean, the main thing that it has prevented us from doing is visiting our kids and or having our kids visit or having other people visit, friends visit and drop by, which, which is a real pain. So that's been somewhat stressful. We do have a dog, so that's sort of a, a furry Valium. And I take the dog out every day for runs and, and, and rides in the in the, sort of the wildlands. So that's, that's a lot of fun. Gotcha. But in terms of COVID and the effects worldwide, University Hills is tremendously lucky. And, and we in particular, I mean, we, we have salaries, we have houses to live in, we have access to food. We're just tremendously, tremendously lucky uh, relative to what a, a lot of what's happening around the world. And especially when you mix in COVID on top of the fires, on top of climate change, on top of, uh, you know, all the pollution and stuff like that. It's just, I have trouble considering myself anything but enormously fortunate. Well said. Harry Mangalam, thank you very much for spending the time with us today just to get to know you a little bit better. And uh, thank you for all the work that you do and help that you are around University Hills. We really appreciate it. Okay. Happy to be on. Happy to be helpful. Thank you again to retired UCI OIT specialist, Harry Mangalam. He spends a lot of time helping the University Hills Village with bikes, household knives, the listserv, and problem solving. Kudos for his efforts and best of luck building his dream home in Nova Scotia once COVID-19 subsides. And now turning the page, coming up next on KUCI at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, where Ash and his guests look at real-world business problems and figure out how they can be solved. Stay tuned. As always, a big shout-out to Fred Kaplan for supplying all my show theme music from his fantastic blues CD, Signifying. Check it out. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of UCI with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, working hard to keep you informed, stimulated, and smiling. Don't forget, you can always hear this broadcast or previous editions of UCI Conversations on my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. And feel free to contact me anytime at kboss at kuci.org. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Have a good week. In fact, have a great week. Social distance and wear that mask. We will get through this. And keep smiling and creating those happy trails. So long, everybody.